Uh, we are in 1 Peter, and we're going to be in 1 Peter 3 today. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up there. The last two weeks of 1 Peter has been very challenging for us. Uh, two weeks ago, we looked at the importance and the call as followers of Jesus to uh, be able to submit to governing authorities. We looked at what it looks like for um, household codes last week and as servants with their masters to submit and to obey. And this week, the, the, the funnel is narrowing. So if you, if you think of like concentric circles, think about week one was really broad. Like anybody who's a citizen, this is our call to come under, sit under, and how to live faithful in a space where it's funky, where things are hurting, where things are broken. Uh, and then it gets smaller, as then it comes into the household. What does it look like to be faithful followers of Jesus on a household? And he looks specifically at relationships between servants and masters. And then today we're going to look into marriages. The relationships are going to get even smaller. The passage that we're walking through is not a marriage-only passage, though, and so I just want to challenge you with that as we kind of get into that. But I want to remind you of kind of our theme and thesis of First Peter, and that's First Peter's being written into a group of people who are exiles, in which we are too, and he's calling them to be resilient disciples in the face of a culture that says something very different about their value and worth and purpose. But he's calling us to be, he's calling them and he's calling us to be faithful disciples in the midst of cultural persuasion and to grow in our understanding and discipleship unto Jesus. So what we're going to be looking at today for many, is something that they don't like to talk about. Sometimes people will eject right at the beginning because it's going to talk about submission. It's going to be talking about obedience. It's going to talk about many things in which are really challenging for us. And I just want to challenge you right here at the beginning, no matter where you are in the spectrum of this conversation, that God's word has something powerful for us this morning. So with that, I just want to pray for us, and I want us to come under God's word right now together. So Father, we love you. We thank you so much for who you are and what you're doing. God, I pray for all those who are participating this morning. Wherever we're at, whatever we've walked through, we come and we present our lives to you as a living sacrifice, which is our spiritual act of worship. So Lord, we come you are our mathetes, you are our teacher, you are our rabbi, Jesus. So we come and we want to sit at your feet, we want to learn from you today. Would you be glorified in and during this time? We pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. All right, here we go, First Peter 1 through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be hidden. Let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy woman who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you 
are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord. So, some of you might cringe a little at some of the things that are, are said as we read. Some of you may be wanting to check out if you're not married. And I understand those tendencies, but this text is not a marriage manual. In fact, it's incredibly generic. If you notice the language here from Peter, this is actually, a, this, he's giving principles. He is not giving law. He's not giving rules. He's giving principles of how to engage in relationship. And yes, it is specific towards marriage, but it is beyond that. It speaks into marriage, but it also fits the wider themes in which we've been talking about in regards to serving and suffering, which ultimately finds its root where? It finds its root in Jesus, like we've already talked about throughout 1 Peter. One of the commentaries I often refer to throughout our study in 1 Peter, it's by Karen Job. She's an amazing um, scholar, and she says this about this section. She says, how ironic is it that the words that the first century slaves and wives would have read as affirming and empowering are criticized by some today as enslaving and oppressive. When read with its original historical setting, these verses become a call to social transformation within the Christian community, allowing it to become an alternate society based on God's redemptive plan. The Christian's willingness to suffer unjustly out of reverence for God in order to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ is a radical break with social expectations of that day, just as it is in our own day today. This passage, like the ones that we've read in the last two weeks, on the surface could be a bit challenging for us to grasp in our 21st century context. And so it's going to be important throughout our time as we walk through 1 Peter together that we understand or start to understand a little bit better to whom Peter is writing, what the situation was like. Because there's many things, just like we read about servants last week, that we would say are no longer acceptable. Peter's, because he's writing into a specific time, he's interested in the servants learning how to serve God in the midst of hardship so that they might win some. We'll see some of the same things here when it comes to marriage relationship. This whole passage is masterfully written. It's like, it's incredible how Peter writes this passage. He's being both affirming to the culture in which he's writing into, and he's being subversive to the culture in which he's writing to. And we're going to take a look at these at a greater depth together this morning a little bit so that we can grasp some of these things. What many of us may not understand is that a Greco-Roman worldview, which is the culture in which he's writing to, is not foreign to the idea of submission or obedience. In fact, there are tons of ancient writing on Greco-Roman household codes, which could sound very, very similar to actually what Paul and Peter write about in scriptures. They're going to be nuanced, but they're going to be very similar. It was a common understanding in a Greco-Roman world that if society was going to flourish, there needed to be a structure and stability in the home. 
And the goal of the Greco-Roman household code was to maintain social and economic stability. Plato taught that the child, servant, and woman were each to submit in different ways to the man's authority and are not to aspire to the roles of another. And Aristotle affirmed that each person was to behave in a manner appropriate to one's roles. So these household codes, these household rules, the culture in which he's writing to, they existed for the betterment of that society at large, which could sound similar to some of the instruction that we have in Scripture. One of the other pieces that's important to note within this context, because the household played such an important role in the thriving and flourishing of a civilization, religions in those days were often judged in large part by whether or not they complied with the expectations of household relationships. So what that, what that means is that the context in which Peter's in is that Peter desires to see people one for Jesus. So household codes had an important apologetic value as a newly formed religion in this society. Meaning that how your household operates for them in that culture in particular, and again, we can try lights of lines to where we are today, that it was important that if there was something that was going to be offensive, it was going to be the gospel of Jesus. And so what he's doing here is he is writing into this culture with a desire to see people one for Jesus. The other thing that we miss, because we are in the West and we are kind of on the end of, um, sort of on the, the tail end of, how do I say this well, um, the idea that all of America is Christian uh, is, is, is not common. Again, this Greco-Roman world, this wasn't true yet. They're, the gospel is breaking through on first, for the first time in this space. But all that I'm saying, excuse me, uh, is, is that it's important for us to recognize within this society in which this church exists, Jesus is not the norm yet. It is not assumed. This is a new religion in many ways, breaking forward into new grounds. And so Peter, as they're coming in as missionaries, every follower of Jesus in the first century would understand that they are a missionary right where they're at, as citizens, as servants, and as husbands and or wives. So that's what he's going to be pressing into today. So Peter, in this section, he's both going to affirm and subvert Roman, Roman, Greco-Roman worldview and household codes. One of the first things he does is he addresses women plainly and directly. Women, children, and servants at this point would have never been addressed unless through the head of a household or through the master of the fields. This, even in the direct, in directly talking to them, he is subverting the cultural norms and understanding. He speaks to women as equals, and as we'll see in a few minutes, co-heirs with Christ. There's going to be this tension that runs throughout this passage that we must grab hold of. The context in which he's speaking in this first section as he's talking to wives and women, he's talking to wives who are married to non-believing husbands. 
And his instruction to them is significant, just like it was to servants and just like it was to citizens. So let's start chunking away about uh, with this a little bit. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their lives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and putting on a gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be hid- the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Okay? Starts with likewise. What's Peter connecting this to? He's connecting this to servants and masters. He's connecting it to citizens and government. He's also connecting this to the way that Jesus actually lived and suffered. So what we're going to do here is we're going to look at how Peter is affirming Greco-Roman culture and how he is subverting it. What is he affirming and where is it different? Okay, wives be subject to your own husbands. We mentioned this briefly. This is not a new concept. This is something that is understood within the Greco-Roman world. This is not new at all. This word subject or be subject in Greek, this is hypotasso. This is what Peter uses when talking about how we're to relate to our government and to masters and our bosses. We are under them. Peter's not necessarily making a claim of whether or not that structure is right. He's identifying what is in the culture in which he's being, he's written into. But he affirms this idea of being subject to your own husbands. He affirms, be respectful. These are common Greco-Roman virtues in which they would have already known. Even the outward appearance of the braiding of hair, jewelry, Greco-Roman world, they, they would have affirmed not to act that way. They would have said that the beauty is not on the outside, it's on the internal. They would have affirmed that, that what matters most is the virtuous woman. They would affirm that beauty fades. So there's so much in this passage that seems like, oh, it's just like the culture. It's just like what they see all around them. However, simultaneously, Peter is subversive to the culture where it does differ dramatically. Right at the beginning, we touched on this for a second, likewise, our submission, whether or not we are male or female, is rooted in our discipleship to Jesus. This likewise is is Peter bringing women into the story of God. The likewise, even though it may not, it seems very small to us, this would be something which is different from the Greco-Roman understanding. Why? Because within a Greco-Roman household, they believed in a pantheon of gods. And Peter, even though he calls wives to submit, never asks women to not Uh, He never asks women to worship the gods of their husbands. And this would have been an incredibly big no-no in Greco-Roman society. This could be something that brings shame on the husband. It could even affect his social standing with others. The Greco-Roman world was incredibly spiritual. Believing in Jesus wouldn't necessarily be the problem. The problem was would be believing in solo Christus, would be in believing that Jesus alone. 
Peter's not saying submit in every single area of your life to your husband. He is identifying and recognizing that your relationship with Jesus is supreme and we must be obedient to him above all else. Again, just pay attention. That, that be submissive is, this is, it's a general term. He does not get really, really specific. He does not give a bunch of rules. The other area where Peter is subversive is Peter's hope and prayer is not only that she would follow Jesus, but that her behavior and pure conduct toward her husband would actually play a role in seeing her husband come to know Jesus. A man changing the gods he worships to would not be something acceptable in the Greco-Roman world, and it definitely wouldn't be acceptable for a woman to be a means in which that takes place. The final big piece where Peter is chipping away at the Greco-Roman worldview is by reminding his listeners that not only will their beauty fade, but what God truly cares about is a right spirit. For the man looks upon the outward appearance of man, but God looks upon the heart. Or as we read in Proverbs 31.30, charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. You see, there's similarities within the culture, but there's drastic differences. The differences primarily exist is why are we doing what we're doing? Are we doing it just so that society might flourish? Or are we doing it because Jesus has called us to live life in this manner and we're called to emulate the way that Jesus lived his life? You could make an argument in these first few verses in 1 Peter 3 that the why behind Peter's call for submission is that some husbands might be one. W-O-N, into the faith. Why we live life a certain way matters. The Greco-Roman worldview is we do this this way just because it will get us to be a flourishing society. Christian worldview is not we live certain way just so it'll get us to a flourishing society. It's we live this way because we have a God who's made us. He is creator of heaven and earth, and he's created us in his image. And he has created us to flourish, but it comes through living life the way that he has designed, not the way that we want to live it. And Peter's continuing this theme of submission which is ultimately, we could talk about it in another term, of serving one another. This is continuing the theme of being willing to serve one another. It is quite interesting that Peter calls these Christian women who have now been enlightened, who now have a follower, they are now followers of Jesus. He invites them into this relationship, this basic relationship and important relationship that they have with their husband, And they believe something totally different. And they say, come and submit. And in doing so, Peter knows that suffering will take place. When husband and wife are not lined up with what the ultimate goal is and who we ultimately serve together, suffering is going to take place. And yet at the same time, Peter calls them in this relationship toward virtuous living. 
towards serving, towards being respectful, towards making sure that they don't get all dolled up. We could go into great detail about some of the implication of for in that day and age of getting all dolled up to go out somewhere without your husband. It was not a good thing that came upon. There was not good for your reputation as a family. And so Peter makes sure to challenge fresh followers of Jesus, even if their husbands are unbelieving, to honor God by continuing to submit to a husband, even if he doesn't follow Jesus. We'll get into more of this as we continue on. But Peter goes on. He kind of starts moving a little bit away from the Greco-Roman worldview, and he brings Sarah into the picture, and he gives Sarah as a role model. You see, we've recognized that there's this crossover culturally, but they're not the same. Greco-Roman world was actually hoping to try and get the things of the kingdom, a stable, growing society with thriving families without King Jesus. They wanted the kingdom without the king. And I love that Peter does this because we all need role models. And honestly, like we've said, because the, the Greco-Roman worldview is a little bit similar, again, they're very different, but they can be similar. You, they could potentially have active role models, but what we forget is that, again, this is a first century, a first generation believing culture. There are not biblical examples that are generations older than them where they're living. They're not people who have been following Jesus for 100 years yet. And so I love what Peter does here. He gives them a role model. He gives them someone to look at, so he points them to Sarah. And the, the submission of Sarah to Abraham was a long-standing element of Jewish tradition. Some say here with the, the call out to Sarah, this is just a generic statement that would have been widely understood that, oh, Sarah was submissive to Abraham, and she's somebody to, uh, to follow after and to be a role model. Some of the listeners, they would know the life and the story of Sarah and Abraham. But some may have been a bit oblivious, too. Again, he's writing into a Greco-Roman world. Some have a Jewish understanding, some don't. But for those who are familiar with Sarah's story, I don't, I don't know. It might be a shocker to hear that Sarah is uh, the example that's given. Because she doesn't necessarily always seem or appear to be the submissive in the ways in which many uh, people inappropriately view submission. Like, Sarah definitely was not weak. You guys remember what she did when God said that she'd have a baby at 90? She laughed. <laughs> In fact, there are three moments where Abraham obeys Sarah. In Genesis 16, 2, verse, and Genesis 16, 6, and Genesis 21, 12. Sarah was adventurous, but she was also willing to listen to Abraham when he had some not-so-good ideas. It's interesting contextually to understand that Abraham's not being highlighted as a great dude in this example, just so everybody knows. Peter's not saying that Abraham wasn't a believer, but what would be alluding to people if they had a Jewish understanding is that Peter's alluding to, <clears throat> he's referring to Genesis 12 and Genesis 20, when Abraham not one time 
but two times convinces his wife to, to, be, to pretend to be his sister so that they won't die. He does this with Pharaoh and Abimelech. I understand maybe making this mistake once, but to two times do this is interesting. Peter is trying to, to help share with the women that he's, are listening to the story that they can relate to women of the faith. They can relate to women like Sarah, whose husband maybe was not acting actually in the most godly manner in that moment. They could maybe relate to her in more ways than they think as Sarah is in a foreign land. She's frightened. She's terrified. Her husband's scared for her life, so he makes some poor decisions, and by God's grace, they turn out okay. In a similar way, Peter's addressing these women living as foreigners, as resident aliens in a hostile society, and he's still calling them. to live a life in reverence to their husband, and to be submissive. Additionally, in this section, Peter is, is pulling the women into the greater story of the gospel, the story of God. He is reminding them that, yes, you might have a physical lineage that's here in Asia Minor and Turkey, but guess what? Now you belong to a bigger story. Sarah actually is, she is part of your lineage now. They now have a new family. They are set apart. Peter is now taking for these women where they would have gone to potentially moral philosophers in Greco-Roman thought, and he's replacing it with the writings of Yahweh's prophets. This is where you go for wisdom. So, in summary, what Peter is saying to Christian women married to non-believing husbands is that they are not to despise, reject their husbands, making the household climate one of hostility, but to submit themselves even to unjust treatment because of their faith in Christ, and in doing so, accomplish God's better way. I want to be very, very clear here. This is by no means is saying that women should stay in abusive relationships. We'll actually get to that in just a second. But we have to remember Peter's writing to a very specific culture with a household code in which followers of Jesus are seen as missionaries, and we have to reclaim that. I, I, you guys, I think we lose sight of the reality that every single one of us are missionaries. We are placed in a certain time and place to exalt Jesus right where we're at. And if we are to do it, suffering will come. This is one of the giant themes that exists throughout 1 Peter is that if you are truly to follow Jesus, it will include suffering. Our goal is not to run from pain. Our goal is to trust Jesus in the midst of pain. I know there's pieces of this that might sound odd to us, but Peter, for the sake of the gospel, is calling, challenging, and inviting women, which would be incredibly empowering. Say, you are a missionary in your home. Be faithful. Be quiet, not because I don't want to hear you speak, but because I'm using you to help woo your husband to myself. Okay. 
Peter then goes on to instruct married men. Guys, just so you know, just because your section is only one verse uh, does not mean that it is any less potent or less important. Remember, this also goes beyond marriages, too. We can pull these principles into relationships throughout. But he says, likewise, again, likewise, what's happening here actually is probably a little bit more aggressive and a little bit more edgy than we possibly think. That likewise, he's pulling men onto the same playing field as women and as servants. This would be totally not okay within a Greco-Roman understanding or worldview. This would not be okay. It's subversive, subversive, but it's very edgy and even radical. Just like servants, just like women, to be put on a level playing field would have been jarring for sure. And in doing this, Peter's identifying that, yes, there are differences, But we're still called to live a certain way. So likewise, husbands, he's writing to followers of Jesus in this moment. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Live with your wives in an understanding way. I don't want to be this guy, um, but I, I will I, I will say the language in here is um, it it contains the sexual tone. There's no way around it. Even though as we're reading it, that's that doesn't seem apparent to us. But the Greek in, in knowing is it's an intimate knowing, and so this has direct sexual implications. Be understanding of your wife. Know her. Listen to her. Do not demand. This all would have been incredibly countercultural. It actually still today in many places is still countercultural. I hear regularly in marriage meetings talking to people, and people instantly, we start talking about my needs. We start talking about what needs to be met. We start talking about certain things, and whether or not we like it or not, men have a tendency throughout history to manipulate, to bulldoze, or to physically assault and getting their way. And here, Peter is pressing against that. Live with your wives in an understanding way. Know them. Know them. Listen to them. And don't listen so that you might get X, Y, and Z. Remember 1 Corinthians 13, our famous love passage, and one of my favorite parts of this is love does not insist on its own way. And so often in relationships, especially from men to women, and this happens the other way too, but they have a tendency to insist on their own way, not loving in a sacrificial manner. So when it comes to your desires, don't be demanding. Doesn't mean we don't share those things. It means we don't demand, manipulate, or force. Once again, this would have been completely subversive to the culture in which it's being written. Showing honor as the weaker vessel. 
Again, another launch pad moment for many. I've talked to many women throughout my years, and you guys know I, I, God has given me, uh, people make fun of me all the time. God has given me a passion to help show and tell women that you are incredibly valuable. You are made in the image of God. You are not less than. Your voice matters immensely. You are beautiful and precious in the sight of God. And any men or society that demeans that is sad, and that is not of God. We are so thankful for you. And here, again, which would have been countercultural, Peter says to show honor as the weaker vessel. Just to be really clear here, Peter's talking purely biological and physical. We're not talking about mental capacity. We're not talking about education. The weaker vessel, this is a physical trait. That there is biological differences between men and women in a physical strength capacity. The other thing it, it is subvertly touching on is highlighting social discrepancies. Many commentators will actually connect this specific passage with physical abuse. This is a subversive way in which Peter, again, is pushing against cultural norms of physical, emotional, and social abuse that would have taken place in that day. But this one in particular is on the physical abuse side. Basically saying that those of you with power and authority in your culture, make sure you honor those in a different state than you. It is... So sad that we need to be talking about this still because it's such a huge problem in our culture. And in very small circumstances, this goes for women too, but men, this tends to be a pretty big issue. I just need to be explicitly clear. Men, there is no room for physical abuse whatsoever in a marriage relationship, in any relationship. There's no room for physical, emotional, or sexual abuse. The amount of domestic violence that takes place here in this county, in our city, is off the charts. I was talking with the sheriff or the people at the sheriff's department, and they were saying the largest amount of calls that they get in our city is for domestic violence outside of uh, like drug use stuff. The number one thing that they get throughout this city is domestic violence. This is still a gigantic problem, and part of it is rooted in the reality that we are not honoring women. For most of you, if physical abuse has been part of your past there is a high likelihood that it's because it's been done to you. But I want you to know that that cycle can stop. It doesn't need to continue. The amount of damage and harm that goes on to women in your household as well as the children that you are bringing up, this can stop now. And as followers of Jesus, it needs to stop. But there is help available. Remember the God that we serve. There is always help available. All right, Peter, he massively brings all of these things into tension. Do not harm them, for they are co 
heirs. You see, for Peter, not harming women isn't just rooted in the fact that that's just pure evil. It's deeper than that. It goes back to Genesis 1, that men and women were created in the image of God to co-rule this place together. That God's design from the beginning was a partnership, not just in marriage, but we see this picture throughout the church of Man and woman walking together, utilizing each other's gifts because we are different and we come together and we show this world who and what God is like. You are co-heirs. What does that mean? Does that mean that I get less inheritance or I get more inheritance than you because I'm a man? Does it mean that I'm more important than you because I'm a man? Does it mean that my vote counts more than you because I'm a man? No. Co-heir, it's a co-equal. We are in partnership together. We need to continue to work on this and grow in this as followers of Jesus in the culture in which we live. You see, we are both born again into a living hope through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and brought into a new family where we're both a chosen race, a, a holy priesthood, a people for his own possession. What's interesting here is this is so important to Peter and to the Lord that if we don't do this, our prayers are actually hindered. Why? Once again, this goes back to God's design for humanity to co-rule and flourish together. Again, not just husband and wife, but brothers and sisters in Christ. As we walked through this passage together, I, I don't know what's jumping out at you and what's not. And Casey, you can come on up. We're going to get ready to respond. But wherever you're at, and throughout the greater context of half of 1 Peter 2, and this one as well, Peter's laying out the necessity to take the posture of a servant. Whether male or female, we are called to serve one another. For every marriage that's, that's out there, every couple that I marry, I, I, one of the things I counsel them is they, that they each have a new challenge, and that's to outserve and outlove one another. If you're in a marriage and the point that you guys are wrestling with is whether or not somebody should submit, that just is, should show you that there's some deeper issues. Submission is never the point. The point is to honor God and to serve him with all that we have. So once again, I, I don't know where you're at. I don't know what things are stirring in you, but I, what I do want to invite you to is I want us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who has served and given up everything, the one who has humiliated on our behalf in order that the gospel might go forward. You might be in a rough situation. There is hope. You might have an incredible marriage. There is hope for it to get better. Wherever you're at, you're in a space that God is moving and he's working in your life. And, and so I want to make sure that as we close our time, 
we look back at 1 Peter 2 where it says not to use our freedom to promote ourselves, but to use our freedom to serve God. And the next phrase is that we honor everyone, everyone, that we fear the, that we, and that we honor the emperor and the governor. And, and, sorry, my, my words are getting jumbled right here. But I've been so struck with this call that if we truly honored one another well, the need to submit to another, one another probably wouldn't be an issue at all. So I hope that the Lord has stirred you and that we can now respond together in him. Father, we thank you for this time. Jesus, I come to you, and, and, and I just even admit, Lord, as I was st- studying this week, and there's so many things that are swirling around in my brain. But Father, we pray right now through your spirit that you would simplify that you would simplify what it looks like for us to live as missionaries right here in our culture, in our marriages, if one of us isn't a believer, that you would simplify our, our lives and what it looks like to serve you each and every day, that you would simplify our lives as we face uncertainty all around us, and that no matter what might come our way, that we would put our trust in you and you alone for Jesus. You are our hope. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done. We ask now that you would continue to stir us towards you as we respond now. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.